Amen. Good morning. We're starting a new series today. Y'all excited? Don't lie in church now. Don't lie in church. Hey, we've got a lot of context to build today. There's going to be a lot of thinking about Scripture as a whole. And so just remember that God gave you cognitive faculties for a reason, okay? You don't have to use your brain this morning. Lean in a little bit. If you would listen quickly, we won't be here all afternoon, okay? I'm teasing. All right, let's pray. So, Father, as we come to your word, we do. We come with an expectancy. Lord, it's the, the treasure of our lives to be able to word of God and, and drink and feast on what you've said. Ask Jesus today that you would mold our hearts, consume us, Lord, with conviction and passion for the glory of God. This morning we put ourselves on the altar afresh. We pray all these things in Jesus' beautiful name. Somebody say amen. The Munster Rebellion in the Protestant Reformation, it was a really early rebellion, and it was just a fascinating mess, okay? And, um, in 1533, the Anabaptists, they began to take over Munster, which is a German city kind of on the coast of Germany and the Netherlands. Um, the Anabaptists, historically, they're called Anabaptists because they didn't believe in infant baptism. Um, they take the same position we took. Uh, infant baptism oftentimes had political connections too was because it was you had to be a member of the roman catholic church to be a citizen so there there were some things happening there um but they resisted infant baptism as not being biblical and um obviously they believed that baptism had to do with faith and repentance in the same way that that we would but the anabaptists in this region they were getting a little getting a little crazy okay they were getting a little hype um so munster had a roman catholic bishop who also had political authority. He kind of ran the city. His name was Franz von Veldick. Now, in 1533, a zealous Anabaptist preacher came into Munster preaching against the Roman Catholic Church, essentially saying that Christ was coming quickly to judge the leadership that, from his perspective, was anti-biblical and um, calling everyone to repentance. Now, I like the drama. I'm in it. I'm in it for the drama, okay? I'm with you. He converts a lot of people to the Anabaptist movement. What they say from here, essentially in the city of Munster, is you can either convert to the Anabaptist position, you can flee, or we're going to imprison you, possibly murder you, okay? And that would not be a biblical position. Um, <laughs> so what the, what the Catholic bishop does is he flees, and with a little clever personality here, he gathers an army, at least 2,000 people we know historically, um, and then he sieges the city. So what we have happening now is this kind of Anabaptist revival. They're getting stirred up. They're hot and ready to go, happening in the city. But outside the city, we have the Catholic um, bishop and his army of about 2,000 people surrounding the thing. Now, this is where it gets good. There was a man named Jan Mathis. He was an Anabaptist leader. Uh, he claimed to see frequent visions. He was a baker. He was my kind of guy. Okay, he could cook. Um, so he didn't have a, 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 a scholastic background. He was a blue-collar man, um, but he could preach. And people said when he preached, he would, the crowds would kind of swoon. I think he was handing out pastries on the side. Um, so what, what, this, uh, what Mathis says is, he said that he saw a vision 
and that Munster was going to become a type of New Jerusalem, and that the millennial reign would come through um, through Munster and through their leadership. They're ushering in pure Christianity, and Mathis gathered around himself twelve disciples, kind of like the apostles or the twelve tribes of Israel. And on Easter, fifteen thirty-four, he says that he saw a vision, and concludes from that vision that he is now the new Gideon. And he's going to take his 12 apostles and take on this army of at least a couple thousand Catholic soldiers surrounding the city. And so they muster up all of their conviction and all of their confidence and all of their passion. And they gird themselves up for war. And this feels like 300, right? Like, yeah, let's do it. Let's see what, let's see what happens here. Now, what happens should be obvious to you. They walk out against the Catholic army of a couple thousand people and they're slaughtered. And Mathis is beheaded and his head is put on a pole for everyone to see. Now, that rebellion just got weirder and weirder. And maybe one day we'll have the time to talk about all that went on there. But there is a great problem with Mathis's position that we would do well to learn from. The obvious looking at it is we as a people believe that the Spirit still speaks to His church through dreams and visions. So we wouldn't say that Mathis is in error for, for trying to hear the voice of God. We think that God still speaks that way. But we do believe that when God speaks to you through prophetic revelation, it should be submitted to elders and to leaders and should be tested biblically. And someone should have the right to say, like, hey, what you just said sounds kind of crazy. Um, but Mathis didn't have that. He just had 12 yes-men who were ready to lose their heads for his vision. The second point that we need to think through carefully is, is this. One of the primary issues with Mathis's um, proposition was that he was not Gideon. Do you know who Gideon was? His name was Gideon. And the Catholics surrounding the city were not the Midianites. And there's a great error that we'll make if we're not really careful. It's, it's really shoddy, and I think it actually comes from a sincere place. We, we'll, we'll start to read the scriptures, always trying to read ourselves into the narrative. And we want to become the main character of the narrative. And we'll always be trying to allegorize the scriptures find a spiritual connection between Gideon, for instance, and ourselves. And then we'll try to draw conclusions about how the scripture is speaking to me rather than telling me about a historical person named Gideon. And, and there's a real error there. And ironically, and again, I think in our movement, as people who claim to believe the scripture to be an errant, I think we do this sometimes from a sincere place, from an ignorant place. But it is ignorant to constantly be trying to read into the narrative your own life in hopes to make the narrative about you and speak to you rather than trying to read out of the narrative what it intended to say to all of the church for all of history. See, you're not the central character in the story, and that's okay. Um, but that position becomes really shoddy. So, for instance, as we turn to the book of Joshua, this morning we'll read... Um, Yahweh say to Joshua, every place your foot treads, I'll give you that land. Every place your foot treads, I'll give you that land. What happens often today, and I've heard it a million times, is we as people who believe the scripture, we try to grab that promise and we try to place it upon ourselves. And we say to one another, every place you place your foot, God's going to give you that territory. Now, there are multiple issues with that. Number one, this promise to Joshua is about the conquest. Every place that Joshua places his foot, the land 
legally becomes Israel's. And so you can't just grab that and place it on me. Like, I can't walk in the grocery store and say, mine. If so, there are some of your houses I already would have taken, okay? Y'all got some good views. I'm coming. And so because we understand that that doesn't make sense, I can't just walk into your house and say, I like it. Get out. We, we get that that doesn't make sense. So then we allegorize it spiritually and we say, what this means is that every place I place my foot, I can now claim as revival and I should have immediate success and fruit. So when I walk in the grocery store, everybody's getting saved because I'm claiming that thing. And that, that feels good, right? It feels like faith. And I've heard many, many charismatics say it. And again, I think from a sincere place, but it's ignorant. It's really ignorant. Think of Jesus's own ministry when he goes to Nazareth. He goes to Nazareth and he says, every prophet is rejected in his hometown. And the scripture says that he could not do many miracles there because of their great unbelief. Now, what I believe that scripture is plainly teaching is not that the unbelief of Nazareth drained Jesus out of his omnipotence. It's not that Jesus was unable to work miracles because of their unbelief. Jesus was omnipotent. He could do whatever he wanted to do. What the scripture seems to plainly be saying is that no one came to him. Every time Jesus stepped foot in a city, anyone who came to him for healing was healed. Even the man who struggled, he said, help me with my unbelief. There's healing and deliverance. So it's not that Nazareth's unbelief drained Jesus of his own power. It's that no one came, if you will, to Jesus' revival meeting. Jesus had a healing meeting in Nazareth and no one showed up. Your scriptural promise is not that every place you step your foot, you'll have ultimate unending success. Your scriptural command is to keep sowing anyway. And what we'll do, guys, I'm, I'm speaking from a pastor's heart here, is what, what we do as charismatics, and, and I say this because I am a charismatic, and I love the charismatic Pentecostal movement. It's my own family. I don't have a big opinion about the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention's mess that they're in right now. I'm not preaching about that because it's, it's not my right. I'm talking about our issues and falls because I love the charismatic church. I don't discipline my neighbor's kids. Discipline my babies. Probably too softly, because I'm soft. Um, what we'll do is when we have new believers, we'll, say, we'll quote that scripture to them. Every place you place your foot, God will give you that territory. And what will happen is they'll start to pray for their brothers and sisters, and they'll go in their house and say, God, you've given me this territory. You've given me this territory. And if they're unsuccessful, they'll say to God, you are not a God who holds true to his word. And the problem is not that God is untrue to his word. The problem is that you had a shoddy, inappropriate application of God's word. Does that make sense? And so sometimes things like that feel good. It feels like faith. And I get it. I, I get it because I want to be a person of faith. I don't want to be a person of unbelief. But we have a responsibility to think carefully as we approach the text because we want to create mature disciples and sound doctrine where people can be matured in the Lord as they grow. We don't want to interpret the scriptures in an immature way that actually discourages believers in the days to come. Because what I want to, see to the, what I want to say to the new believer who's praying for his brother and sister to get saved is you keep going in that house and praying. Don't quit. Keep praying until the day that you die, believe for their salvation. I don't want to say God's required to give you everything that you place your foot on today because he said it to Joshua. It has nothing to do with what God said to Joshua. What God was saying to Joshua was about the physical land belonging to Israel. 
So when I approach that line of scripture, I'm not thinking about a spiritual allegory with me bringing the kingdom. It actually develops my theology concerning Israel's right to the land. My position towards modern Israel is developed because I believe that God promised Israel that territory and that God's promises are sure and true. Does that make sense? So when I approach the text, I'm actually thinking about Israel's right to the land. I'm not thinking about my promise to have ultimate success in every place I tread my foot. You guys kind of get what I'm saying? And so, so as we approach Joshua 1, what we don't want to be doing is to be constantly reading ourselves into the story and trying to allegorize and find our own applications in hopes of stirring something up. While that may feel good, it may produce negative fruit in the years to come. Which, ironically, is totally counter what the first couple chapters of Joshua are about. What we want to do is read the story honestly and say to the text, what are you teaching us about God? And what are true and honest applications for ourselves that, that are sincere? And so, as always, you have a responsibility to think carefully. Um, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go. Alright, you guys okay if we read our passage this morning? We're going to read just verses 1 through 6 today. We're going to study the first five chapters of Joshua, which a lot of it is narrative. It's a whole story. So we'll, we'll kind of take each story at a time. So don't feel like Caleb's going to go one line at a time for five chapters, and we're going to be here till Easter 2024. Um, we'll pick up as we go. Joshua chapter 1, verse 1 through 6. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord... The Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give to them. Now, we need to just build a little bit of context. Um, just to jog our memory uh, concerning the scriptures. So think with me for a minute. Joshua comes right after Deuteronomy. The Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, are, are a whole section together, historically believed to be written by Moses. And we would hold to that view, outside of maybe the last chapter of, of Deuteronomy where Moses has passed away. And so those five books, um, written by Moses, and from Exodus on... Moses is really the primary character. Um, we're introduced to Moses in Exodus 1. You, you think Genesis chapter 12, God's promise to Abraham. From Genesis, we follow Isaac's life, and then we follow Jacob's life, and then Jacob's son Joseph is brought into, brings Israel and his family into Egypt because of the great famine, right? Then there's that 400-year period in which... Um, Israel becomes slowly enslaved to Egypt. Then they begin to cry out for their, for their liberation. 
and God raises up Moses. And so from there on, from Exodus on, we're really following Moses' bringing Israel out of Egypt, Moses' receiving of the law, Moses' wandering in the wilderness, Moses' dis- discipling and correcting the people of Israel. And Moses, f- from a New Testament perspective, is considered the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. Moses is highly honored and dignified. He's the man who spoke with God as God speaks with a friend. He's called the meekest man on earth. And, and so in, in, in many ways, we see his burning bush encounter. We see him standing before Pharaoh and performing signs and wonders, receiving the law on the sacred mountain, establishing the tabernacle where Yahweh will meet with the people. Israel's identity to this point, it really it revolves around the person in the leadership of Moses. So our introductory line this morning, in English we read, now it came about. But in Hebrew, Francis Schaeffer points out that the introductory word is vav, which just means and. So, And that's not uncommon for books in the Bible to open with the word and, but it does tell us that what's happening in the narrative of Scripture is we are leaving the error of Moses. We are leaving the section of the Pentateuch. And God is continuing to work through Israel and through Joshua's leadership. And so we are in a position of transition. God is not finished with Israel just because Moses' lifespan is up. Remember that, again, our open line, and it came about that after the death of Moses... Remember that Moses in Numbers 20, he finds himself leading the people of Israel in the wilderness and they're thirsty and God tells Moses to speak to the rock, but Moses strikes the rock twice with the rock, uh, with his rod. And the punishment for his disobedience was that Moses would not be allowed to enter into the land. So in Deuteronomy chapter 34, which is the closing chapter of the Pentateuch, Moses climbs Mount Nebo and the Lord allows him to see all of the promised land. There the scripture tells us that Moses dies. Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 4 through 8. Again, this is the last chapter of the Pentateuch, and it's leading us into our text today. The Lord said to him, being Moses, this is the land. This is where Moses is standing on Mount Nebo. He's looking out over all the promised land. This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley of the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. So consider here the instability of transition. For years now, Israel has depended on Moses to hear from God. Moses has judged um, disputes. He's established justice. Moses has been the, the leader, the representative. And now as he passes, Israel mourns, and they find themselves in transition. And transitional periods matter. Transitional periods can breed instability.
we can't avoid transition, primarily because the promises of God extend far beyond us. So transition is a fact of life. So Moses is forced to reckon with transition in the same way that we will be forced to reckon with transition. We cannot avoid transition, but we can plan for it well. And what we see in the life of Moses is that he raises up, invests in, he's discipling and drawing close to himself a younger man with leadership abilities and and in solid character because he recognizes that there will be a day when he will be laid in the dirt. If we fail to plan for transition, we will leave our generations in a place of vulnerability. If a church fails to plan for the day in which their primary congregation, their leadership goes to the dirt, that that church leaves the generations to come in a great place of instability. If you don't think about your grandkids not having you one day, and you don't consider helping them to have a biblical worldview and modeling for them what it looks like to walk with God, if you don't have some intentionality concerning the transition when you're laid in the dirt and what their life will look like without you. You will leave them in a vulnerable place. So we must be intentional. We are forced to reckon with transition. We are forced to think generationally because God thinks generationally. We are not the center of the universe. All of God's plans and motivations and His agenda does not stop with us. We have to think about what happens when we're laid in the dirt. And who we're leaving things to. And how we're stewarding our faith. To not think generationally. To not ponder what's to come. To not invest in those God will use in the days beyond you. Is unwise, improper, irresponsible, and sinful. To only think about us and how we can fulfill our wants. To be so absorbed in us drinking from God. And to not be absorbed in how we with sincerity pass off our faith is grievously irresponsible. We must steward our legacy, meaning every generation, our generation, we have the responsibility to look back historically, to know our own story. Joshua will have the, will have the responsibility to teach Israel for the years to come all that God did in the life of Moses. We have the responsibility to, to know how our parents were saved or grandparents were saved or to tell the stories of old revivals when God moved in power. And we have the responsibility to communicate that legacy to the generation to come and to disciple them in a way that they can carry on the mantle. If you don't think about that, you are irresponsible. If you are so self-absorbed in your own well-being and you have not given yourselves to pray for your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren you are selfish and irresponsible we must continue on wednesday nights we've done this forever now as we're praying through our prayer points we've tried to be intentional we'll start praying for the kids in the nursery and we'll start praying for the kids and youth and we'll start praying that god will raise up leadership in this house long after we're gone Because we are not the end of God's plan. 
We've talked about this concept as it pertains to, to financial stewardship. We, at some point, are going to need to think about expanding, and we're running out of space. One of the things that the, the church leadership did was handed me was a, a building without a mortgage. That was a huge deal in COVID-19, 2020, to not have the financial pressure of a large debt from the generation before us. And so we have to think about those things. We need to think about that corporately and individually. The scriptures say that a righteous man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. The righteous man does not leave a large lump of debt to his children's children. So we think about that concept as it pertains to stewardship. We think about that context as it pertains to doctrine. Listen to me. If we do not teach plainly and clearly sound doctrine, our children will find themselves in bondage to shoddy, shallow, inappropriate doctrine. When I teach my kids justification by faith alone, that they are saved solely by the blood of Jesus on the cross, they cannot earn it. They can only receive it. That doctrine brings liberation and freedom. Grace, the word grace means unmerited favor, a gift that you couldn't earn, but it's given to you anyway. As I teach my kids that, they are liberated by the freedom of the gospel. But if we teach that doctrine in a muddy way or a shoddy way, our kids will be bound by a spirit of religious performance. Our teaching matters. We must think carefully. We have got to learn to not be so quick with our shallow, off-the-hip interpretations. We need to put our face before the Word. We need to learn basic things like logic and sound reasoning. Because oftentimes we bring theological positions that are, that are not even comprehensible. They're not fluid. You, half of your doctrine totally disagrees with the other half of your doctrine. And you present that to your kids as if they're supposed to make sense of it. We've got to think carefully. Because what we teach will mold our children. Now I'm sweating. If we don't think carefully about the gifts of the Spirit, we may make a mess of our kids. I want my kids to know the Holy Ghost. The Scripture teaches plainly, I will argue this to the day I die, it teaches plainly that the Holy Spirit speaks to His church, that the Holy Spirit bestows upon his church certain gifts the gift of tongues the gift of prophecy of healing the scripture makes that plain i didn't make that up that's in the bible that this, the holy spirit gives the church certain gifts i want to teach my kids that but i also need to teach them that the scripture says in first thessalonians chapter 5 that they should not despise prophecy so don't throw a prophecy away but test it discern it Submit it to your pastor and your elders and bring it to your godly leadership, people you trust, and ask them what they think about it. If I heard every thus saith of the Lord and believed it with all my heart, I would be schizophrenic today. Right? And so I've got to teach my kids to think carefully. I want to teach them to lean into the Spirit, never despise prophecy. But just because somebody says thus saith to the Lord to you doesn't mean you've got to take that to the bank. Otherwise, I leave them for wolves. And, as I transition, John Wesley said this, What one generation tolerates, the next generation will embrace. What one generation tolerates, the next generation will embrace. When it comes to matters of holiness, if we tolerate a dumbing down of biblical standards in our generation, particularly as it pertains to sexuality, why do we continually need to stand up and say, this is what the Bible teaches, marriage is between one man and one woman? Because if we tolerate something, our kids will embrace it as truth. 
why do we, we need to continually say sex needs to wait for marriage? Because if I tolerate that, I, I'm, in, I'm, I'm subtly telling my children, go ahead, go ahead and have your way. And we know thoroughly that sexual relations outside of the context of marriage bring bondage. The scripture teaches that when a man and woman consummate, that when a man and woman participate in sexual acts, there are spiritual things happening. And so I, you, you say, Caleb, you, talk, you might talk about that too much. You don't, I heard, there's, there's a little thing going around on the internet from the, the I, I said I don't care about the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention, but they're having a, a good old-fashioned throwdown between themselves right now. Um, and there's a point where some of the leadership Oh my gosh, there's a bomb. Uh, bad joke. Oh, bad joke, Caleb. Um, oh. <laughs> um, some of the leadership of the SBC made this comment. That the Bible, we should... Sp- it's a long, long conversation. But they essentially said this. that What the Bible shouts about, we should shout about. And what the Bible whispers about, we should whisper about. And the implication was that the Bible shouts about greed... The Bible shouts about self-centeredness, but the Bible whispers about sexual sin. Therefore, the church today should not shout about sexual sin. The Bible shouts about all sin. The Bible shouts very clearly, die, come and die. Be filled with Christ. Live holy. Be holy as I am holy. That's a shout. But if we say that to our kids, we don't shout about that. We don't shout about sin. What we're actually doing, and we're, we're creating, we're, it, it's, it's, it's as if the enemy has laid a great snare bef- before our kids, and we're saying, just dance around that and see what happens. It's very unwise. And so you say, Caleb, stop shouting about these political issues. Stop shouting about the direction of culture. And we need to shout now so that our kids aren't tangled up later. And, and I want you guys to hear my heart. I am not shouting because I want to be political, because I want to be offensive, because I want to belittle somebody. I am only shouting because I care about the future of my kids. I'm only shouting because I care about the future of our grandkids. And that's a totally different thing. So I reject the, the idea that I care about politics. I only care about politics as they relate to spiritual matters. And, and things like abortion, those are spiritual matters. So quickly, I'm sorry, that was a little bit of a rabbit trail. I was too far there. Quickly, consider with me the relationship of Moses and Joshua. We first meet Joshua in the battle against Amalekites. Remember where Moses is standing on a mountain, and when he holds up his hands, Israel has great victory. But when his hands fall down, push back. So Aaron and Hur stand on the sides of Moses and hold his hands up. But it was Joshua who was on the battle leading the, the, the military forces. So the introduction of Joshua, we see that he's a military man, a great military leader. And it's interesting to consider Moses' leadership um, interceding before God for Israel while the energy and strength of Joshua leads the battle. Think of Exodus chapter 33, verse 8 um, and on. I want to read you this quickly because I think it's important. This is, a, this is a very significant passage of Scripture. This says this, Whenever Moses went out of the tent, the tabernacle, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door. And watch until Moses had gone into the tent, into the tabernacle. And when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak with Moses. 
So when Moses went in the tabernacle, the pillar, the cloud that led Israel, would descend upon the tabernacle, and God would, would stand there and speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of the cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks with his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant, Joshua the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. So Joshua would go with Moses to the tabernacle where Moses met with God. And when Moses was done speaking with the God, Joshua would lay his face in the dirt and wait in the presence of the Lord. He would saturate his life in the glory of God. He learned from Moses that he should be concerned with God's presence. Furthermore, of course, Joshua is chosen as one of the twelve to spy out the land. Only he and his friend Caleb returned back and said, we should take that. Everyone else trembles in fear. The only negative account of Joshua's life, and, and if you could say anything about Joshua from a broadly historical perspective, his, his, what we find in Scripture is that he's a steady, sound, faithful man. Doesn't seem to be filled with big emotions. There's not big drama surrounding his life. He's a day in and day out, honor the Lord kind of man. I think that's something we can honor and get behind. The only negative story of Joshua in the scriptures is when um, Moses says to Israel, he appoints 70 men to come. And the, and the spirit that's on Moses is going to be placed upon these 70 elders. And they're going to prophesy. And this takes place. 70 elders come and the spirit is placed upon them and they prophesy. Except for two, there were two men who didn't show up. So it's technically 68. Two men didn't show up. They were still in the camp. But they began to prophesy anyway. And so Joshua grows offended. And he says to Moses, tell them to, tell them to be quiet. And Moses says, don't be jealous for my sake. I wish that all would prophesy. The only negative account we have of Joshua is in this moment, in an act of ignorance, he, he's trying to honor Moses' name and role as a prophet rather than recognizing what God is doing. Even in his mistake, we see admirable characteristics. We see a great honor and reverence for Moses. Generations loving and honoring one another. Moses loves Joshua, trusts Joshua. Where Moses goes, Joshua goes. And Joshua loves Moses, honors Moses. He doesn't seek to expose Moses' weaknesses because Moses does have some weaknesses. But he's always girding up Moses, being Moses' strength. And the church today, we must learn from these men. We have no option but to learn to foster an environment where generations love generations. We need to trust and value generations. We need to recognize the need to learn from the elder and to hear the stories of what God's done in the past, to trust the wisdom that they carry today. And as the elder, we need to recognize our responsibility to get up under the generations to come and thrust them into the things of the Lord much farther than we've even gone. We want to be our ceiling to be the next generation's floor. That's our responsibility. We want our kids to know the glory of the Lord in a way that we never knew. From a natural perspective, Moses had wisdom and Joshua had energy and their coming together would bring about success. That principle exists even in secular leadership. And that principle alone is not enough for a people to unite themselves because there are generational differences. There's no doubt about that. There's differences in the way that we think, the way that we dress, the way that we talk, the kind of music we like, 
There are a million differences. We could pick each other apart if we wanted to. And just saying alone, hey, if we unite your wisdom and my strength, maybe we can do something successful. Just that that alone is not enough to unite a church. What united Joshua and Moses was a passion for the glory of Yahweh. What caused them to work out their differences was not saying to one another, you're strong and I'm smart, let's do it was saying to one another, I will die before I spit on the name of Yahweh. I love the glory of God. When Moses and Joshua come down from Mount Sinai, when Moses has just received the law, you remember Moses was on the mountain for 40 days, and Joshua went halfway up the mountain. He didn't go all the way, but he waited for Moses. You remember what happened in the camp. They couldn't wait that long. And so they created a calf, and they're dancing around worshiping the calf. But, But Joshua did wait that long. He waited faithfully for Moses waited, waited, waited. And when Moses came down, they walked together. And then they start to hear the sound, you remember? Is it war? Sounds like celebrating. And when Joshua and Moses approached the camp, their frustration is what? That they would dare worship an idol? Think about Moses' intercession. This is really important. I wish I had the time, I wish I had three weeks just to talk about this. Think about Moses' intercession for Israel, the time and time when they sin. And God says, I'm going to smite these people. I'm going to destroy these people. And Moses does not say, oh God, don't destroy them. They're great. I love them. Don't, please don't destroy them because they've, they've got a lot of giftings and you could really do something with them. Moses says, if you destroy them, the nations will say of you, you were unable to lead them into the promised land. Consider the glory of your own name. Moses' intercession is based upon the fact that he is jealous for God to be worshipped among the nations. If you destroy Israel now, the nations will say that your arm was not strong enough. You led them out of Egypt, but you couldn't lead them into the promised land. The nations will spit on your name. Therefore, have mercy and vindicate the glory of your name. Paul approaches this theme. These themes are all throughout the scripture. I think, and I think I say this with a measure of a measure of prophetic authority. I feel like in the spirit I've sensed this. I think that one of the greatest problems in the church today is we have no reverence for the name of God. We, the church lives however she wants to live. We're flippant with our doctrine. We're flippant with the way that we speak to one another. We're flippant with the way that we, we live out holiness because we don't really care what our nation thinks about Yahweh. Gosh, I'm talking too long. It's your fault. Um, The ironic blessing, um, Aaron's blessing, when Aaron's supposed to hold out his hands and bless Israel. May the Lord bless you and keep you, cause his face to shine upon you. God said to Aaron, to Moses, that when Aaron does that, he will place the name of the Lord upon the people, and they will have favor because the name of God is on them. And then the prophets will say, when Israel sins, they misrepresent the name of God. And Paul will re- reiterate that idea. And this idea is the same for us. The name of God is upon us. We are his representatives. The way that we operate either either honors and reveres his own glory and dignity and holiness, or we're sloppy and, and we're, we're, we're kind of flippant. And what we do is we cause people to say, I don't, the, the Christian's God seems to be schizophrenic. The, Christian, the Christians don't care. Why should we follow him? And we actually dishonor his name. 
Moses and Joshua were united around this truth. God must be worshipped. He is the glorious creator of all things. He is God alone. The name of Yahweh should be revered and respected and adored. They were united around a passion and conviction for God. And all the generational differences, that doesn't really matter anymore because we have a common goal that God be glorified among all the nations. Therefore, what is the undergirding conviction of a multi-generational church? It is not. We will be multi-generational because we want to look a certain way. It is, we will be multi-generational because our generations love the glory of God. And when the generations begin to bicker, the, this happens in, I was, this does not happen in our church. At least it hadn't happened in a while. It has happened before. Um, well, I haven't heard this in a long time. When we start to bicker, like, those young people, they dress sloppy, they got holes in their jeans, or we start to bicker, like, this music, I don't like this music. Or the young people start to bicker about the old people, and the, the old people are always trying to make us turn everything down, and the old people only want to, do Sunday school, and, and, and we start to create these divisions between the generations, the solution to that is not for me to say, hey, the old people are wise and you're strong, let's unite and then we'll be successful. The solution to that is to say, this is not about you, it's about the glory of God. And the presentation that needs to come from me, from our pulpit, from our elders, is not, we're going to be multi-generational because we, we like to look in, like we're inclusive. The, the, the representation is, Every generation should bow their knee to God's glory. And doctrinally, let's explore further what it means to be a people who care about God's glory being declared to the nations in every generation. And God's glory is more important than how loud or quiet you think the music should be. And God's glory is much more important than what color you think the carpet should be. And whether or not I tuck in my shirt, whether or not you, why I wear a tie. Caleb doesn't tuck in his shirt because he's feeling a little fat these days. Like I'm, I'm working out though, give me a break. I feel like I'm all a little uncomfortable. What united Moses and Joshua was a conviction that God must be worshipped. And that conviction is multi-generational. Therefore, the church should be multi-generational. Secondary, what united Moses and Joshua was a love for Israel. And in the same sense, what should unite our generations is a love for the church. We must teach our children, our grandchildren, to love God's people. There's, we cannot, we should not embrace a posture that's constantly nitpicking the church, saying of the church, oh, the church never does this, or the church doesn't do that, or Caleb doesn't do this, or the elders don't do that. We don't want to embrace this posture that's always nitpicking the church because our kids will pick that up. What we want to do is when we see weaknesses, fill them with humility. Because, and you guys know, we believe from Ephesians chapter 4 that every one of you have a call to do ministry. So if there's a hole in the way that we're doing ministry, it might be because God has called you here to fill that hole. And so what we want to do is always be encouraging, always be loving the church. That doesn't mean that you turn a blind eye to, to issues that are wrong. That, what that means is when you see things are wrong, you come to the leadership and you say, hey, I think we could do this better. There's quite a different posture than pointing at the church and saying, the church is awful. I don't want anything to do with it. And then saying, the church is weak here, leadership. Let's think about how we could do better here. They're two totally different postures. So from here, as God, 
what the scripture implies is that, that God buries Moses. And then God turns to look to Israel. Now, all of those who were told they weren't allowed to enter the promised land have passed, this being the last. And he looks to Israel, and he says, My promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, and to Moses are yet unfulfilled. I need a man. There is a man, because Moses left one. There's a man who carries Moses' heart, who knows Moses' story, who carries Moses' values. Scripturally speaking, Joshua is not the prophet that Moses was. It's not that Joshua is as gifted as Moses or is as honored as Moses. And so it's, it's not that the church should always be looking for the most gifted person to put in the next role. It's that Joshua carried the heart of Moses, that God should be honored, that God should be glorified. Now watch what God says to Joshua in our text today. Just as I was with Moses so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. That must be what we long for our children to know. That the God who was with us will faithfully walk with them. It must be what we long for our grandchildren to know. The God who was with me. I, I you guys know this enough to know that I've had seasons of, of sorrow and frustration and um, I'm young, and I've, I've had some already. Um, but even in my darkest nights, God has been so faithful and steadfast and good. And I can look back and say, that season was awful, but God's presence was sweet. He has been faithful to me. And I need to communicate to my children. I did not make it because of my own strength. I didn't have the wisdom for every dark season. I didn't make it because I was smart or because I, I manipulated things and positioned myself for success. I didn't make it because I had to, I dug deep within my own personal will and strength. I made it through the darkest nights because God was with me. And I want my kids to know that the God of Israel say to them, I will be with you just as I was with your father. I want the pastor of this church 100 years from now, if Jesus tarries, to know that God is with him. If Jesus tarries and doesn't return in our generation, I want the elders that come after us. I want the leadership to come after us. I want the, the, the Bible studies, the kids' ministry after us to know that Yahweh, the holy God of Scripture, is present in their midst. The nearness and steadfast love of God is what makes life sweet. From a purely practical standpoint here, my life, my joy, my strength, my courage, my get up out in the bed in the morning, I find all of my nourishment in the person of Jesus. I want my kids to see that, and I want them to drink from that well. We want the, this church for a hundred years to